Just a block away from the Metropolitan Museum of Art on Madison Avenue and 81st Street in New York City lies the Frank E. Campbell Funeral House, otherwise known as the Funeral Home of the Stars. For almost 100 years, the Campbell House has hosted the funerals of celebrities, dignitaries, artists, and the upper crust of American and international society. Frank E. Campbell himself invented the funeral parlor as we know it. Indeed, before he began the business that still bears his name, even the funerals of the extremely rich and famous were held in private homes. But Campbell changed all that by breaking social taboos around advertising and death, hosting and publicizing elaborate funerals, and in general, commercializing mortuary services in a way that had never been done before. After Campbell landed the funeral service of the silent film star Rudolph Valentino in 1926, his name was made and the era of the designer funeral began. And so it made sense that 50 years ago, in the spring of 1968, the Campbell House would host the funeral of one of America's literary luminaries. As part of planning the funeral services, her family arranged for barricades and a police presence outside Campbell's to deal with the throngs of well-wishers, celebrity spotters, and rubberneckers that emerged to witness the passing of an icon. Celebrants at the funeral included superstars of New York's art and letter society like Richard Rogers, lyricists of classic American musicals like Oklahoma and The Sound of Music, and the founder and president of Random House, Bennett Cerf himself, who gave the eulogy. After the service was over and the attendees filed out of the funeral into a bright spring New York day, they were greeted by... nothing. No one was outside waiting to catch sight of a tear-streaked famous face or to watch solemnly as the coffin was carried out into the waiting hearse. The policemen on duty stood smoking and looking around, wondering what, and more importantly, who the hubbub, well, wasn't about. Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Jeff O'Neill. And I'm Rebecca Shinsky. In today's episode, we explore the life and work of Edna Ferber, the most important American writer you have probably never heard of. At her height, she topped bestseller lists, won the most prestigious literary award America has to offer, and had her work adapted into iconic movies and musicals. Ever heard of Showboat or the movie Giant? Both are based on books by one Edna Ferber. But by the time she died, the American reading public didn't care. And today, well, you have to listen to a show like this to figure out exactly what happened. This episode of Annotated is sponsored by Penguin Random House Audio. Keep up with your book club reading by listening to the audiobook. Audiobooks are the perfect complement to your busy schedule. Listen to new releases such as Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens and read by Cassandra Campbell, and you can enjoy a whole new book club experience. For more listening suggestions, visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot. Thanks to Penguin Random House Audio for sponsoring Annotated. Here's a very good bit of literary trivia. Probably too hard to ever be useful at trivia night at the bar or on Jeopardy, but a good nugget nevertheless. Ah, uh, this is really our happy place, isn't it? <laughs> there have only ever been four books to both win the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and be the best-selling novel of the year in the same year. I can vouch that this one is really tough, but here's a hint. It actually sort of makes it harder, though. It hasn't been done for more than 50 years. Okay, we're going to give you a minute to think, along with a little thinking music. And then, time will be up. All right, pencils down. 
Let's work backwards from the most recent, and it's the most famous today, Gone with the Wind by Margaret Mitchell, published in 1936. It was also the best-selling book of 1937. Five years before that, Pearl S. Buck won the Pulitzer for The Good Earth, while it was also the best-selling book of the year. And then six years later, Buck was awarded the Nobel Prize. Not too shabby. And then three years before Buck won the Pulitzer, Thornton Wilder pulled off the Pulitzer bestseller combo with The Bridge on the San Luis Rey. While Wilder is now best known for the high school theater standard Our Town, that guy could move some units. But the first person ever to win the Pulitzer Prize for a novel and also have the best-selling novel of the year was, well, you might have put two in together by now, Edna Ferber. In 1924, her novel So Big topped Publishers Weekly's bestseller list, and then she won the 1925 Pulitzer for Fiction. And here's the thing that's kind of mind-blowing. So Big wasn't even Ferber's only book to be the best-selling novel of the year. Her Cimarron sold more copies than any other American work of fiction in 1930 as well. And this is how I first came across Edna Ferber's name, by trolling bestseller lists from almost a century ago. You probably don't get invited to many parties. Not twice. So you out there listening are now in your heads asking the crucial two questions. Just who in the world was Edna Ferber? And why doesn't anyone know her name? Well, it's a puzzle in in a certain way because she was at the forefront of American literature for so long. This is Julie Gilbert, Edna Ferber's great-niece and biographer. And for most of her adult life, Gilbert has wrestled with the question of why Ferber's name has faded. It's haunting, the question you asked, because my dad used to say that he felt that her life was not the kind that makes for the heroine. And I used to fight him all the time. Well, he used to he used to feel that this was not an exciting life per se. And then and I used to try to explain to him that I felt that the importance of the life But even just a few years after Ferber died, Gilbert noticed that bookstores just weren't carrying her books anymore. And one day, she went on a bit of a crusade through the bookstores of Manhattan, trying to right this wrong. I was very proud of her, obviously, and very close to her. And when I was in my early 20s, and I would go and I would almost dare them not to have a book, you know? <laughs> and, but they wouldn't, or they would kind of look blank when I would say Edna Ferber. But like most crusades, this one ended in frustration. And Gilbert has spent decades trying to revive Ferber's name to little success. As surprising as it seems, this happens sometimes. Writers who were once well-known and praised are forgotten. There are just too many centuries of literature for every name to remain known. But this doesn't mean that history got it right or that it can't be changed. And the question I got interested in is this. What the heck happened? And was it right? And to figure that out, we have to go back to the beginning of Ferber's life. All right, it's biography time. Kyle, give me some Ken Burns old-timey documentary music. I was thinking banjo, but this will do. All right, thanks for indulging me. Edna Ferber was born on August 15, 1885 in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Her parents were first-generation Hungarian Jews who ran a small dry goods store. But it was a little too small of a small dry goods store, and soon after Ferber was born, the family moved to Appleton, Wisconsin to try their luck there. And they got some luck, though of both kinds. The store did well, but Ferber's father's health deteriorated rapidly, so Julia Ferber had to take the reins from her husband. And this created a dynamic that would shape Ferber's worldview profoundly. 
they had this success finally in Appleton. And Julia was everything that women wanted to be, but kind of just weren't really together as much then in that she was a businesswoman. She did the books. She ordered the goods. She did everything. And Ferber understood that as a role model. Julia Ferber had to take on this role because Edna's father was, A, not a forceful personality in the first place, and B, soon entirely out of the picture. The passive, recessive, sweet, sweet man who then just crumbled and became blind and died. Julia Ferber thrived as the head of the household and business, but the family still needed all the extra money it could get. So Edna attended college only briefly and instead got a job. She saw her mother working out in the world and doing well, which emboldened Edna to try things that simply weren't done by women, especially young girls at the time. And her first sally into the world of work would also be important in shaping her artistic vision. At the age of 17, she got a job as a junior reporter for the Appleton Crescent, which to that point had never had a woman reporter, let alone a teenage one. In the Appleton Crescent office, There were people who were furious that she was there. They didn't believe a woman should be a a news person. And that, I think, added to her grittiness. This is Ed Ivkovich, who is a longtime fan of Edna Ferber and has written a series of mysteries featuring a main character by the name of Edna Ferber. As she went around town, she encountered situations that ordinarily she, as a young, sheltered Jewish Midwestern girl, would not have ever been a part of. And I think it wised her up in many ways. And I thought it also fed into her ambition. I mean, I think it gave her the roadmap to the way she could possibly succeed in the world. One of the stories she saw over and over again was already familiar to her. Single women out in the world trying to make a go of it. Like her mother, like her, and like many other women that for one reason or another were entering the workforce on their own. Ferber synthesized these real stories into a fictional character named Emma McChesney, a divorced traveling sales representative for T.A. Buck's Featherloom Skirts and Petticoat Company. In a series of short stories that would eventually fill three volumes, Edna chronicled Emma's negotiation of reps making unwanted advances, other salesmen horning in on her turf, and the myriad pitfalls awaiting a distinctly new American figure. The Professional American Woman. These stories were a sensation, and editors at women's magazines that published the stories got mounds of letters from readers, many of them wondering how Edna Ferber knew so much about their lives, and could Edna Ferber please remind them of when they must have met? How else could she have captured their stories so accurately? Fame and fortune followed. She had tens of thousands of readers, including notably one Teddy Roosevelt, who once wrote Edna concerned about Emma's personal life. Quote, I wonder if you feel that I am hopelessly sentimental because my only objection to the last 12 pages is that I would like somehow to see not only the boy marry, but poor Emma McChesney at last have the chance herself to marry somebody decent with whom she was in love. But the rough-riding former president would be disappointed. Ferber never wrote such an ending for Emma. In fact, she never wrote an ending at all. One day, she realized she was done with the series. She talks about how one magazine sent her a blank check and said, just fill in the amount. We want one of these Emma McChesney stories. And that's when she stopped writing them because she realized she had done it to death. Ferber had actually already published a novel while the McChesney stories were all the rage. Though, like many things in Edna's life, it didn't come about in the usual way. Edna threw away her first novel, just threw it in the trash 
Dawn O'Hara and and Julia Ferber got it out of the trash and sent it unbeknownst to Edna to Knowles to Frederick Knowles, the publisher, big publisher in the Midwest, and enabled Ferber to have the beginning of that starry career. Three novels followed Don O'Hara, The Girl Who Laughed, between 1917 and 1922. They sold well, and Edna was a name brand at this point, a brand that she cultivated carefully. She wanted to be both literary and best-selling as a, as a kind of a writer, and she had big advocates. William Allen White was one of her advocates, and they plugged her works, they pushed her works, it made her, I think, you know, one of the sensations of the day. She was, her name was instantly recognizable when her books were all serialized in magazines. She always insisted on having all of her novels serialized in women's magazines to get that kind of audience. And that was a coup to get one of the serials in their magazines. I remember looking at the covers of magazines. Her name is in huge, bold print, Edna Ferber. Her fame finally crested with the publication of So Big in 1924. To Ferber's fans, the plot of So Big would be familiar. Selena Peek de Jong becomes a schoolteacher in a small farming community and eventually marries one of the local farmers. When he dies, she takes over the farm and the economic responsibility of providing for her son, Dirk. Unlike the McChesney stories, though, So Big is concerned about the multi-generational effects of certain sacrifices, compromises, and in general things not working out badly exactly, but also not without their sadnesses. The book flew off the shelves. It immediately jumped to the top of the bestseller list at the time of its publication in the spring, and it stayed there for most of 1924. And when the prize committee for the Pulitzer in Fiction convened, it just so happened that our old friend and mentor, William Allen White, was one of the three judges. White and Ferber had been friends for decades at this point, with Ferber making several visits to White's home in Emporia, Kansas. The initial lists of the nine finalists didn't even have so big on it. White kicked into a smooth operator mode to get Ferber on the list for consideration. Well, it was a manipulation, really. The players were were pretty stingy about giving Ferber the prize, and and they, I think, there were three or four voters, and they wanted other people, and White just kept pushing her forward. There's a wonderful correspondence. Um, one of the guys was named Firkin, and there's this great correspondence that led to actually their decision to give it to Aunt Edna, but it was by default, totally by default. And White was just so strong in knocking the others out of the, her path, and and so it was, he championed her, and they finally bowed down to him. And it worked. Edna Ferber was awarded the Pulitzer in 1925. At this point, Ferber was the most famous novelist in America, and she reveled in it. She took pride in her money, her fame, and her influence. And who wouldn't? But Ferber, though she wouldn't talk about it until late in her life, saw her public success as righting another wrong. She loved the money. She, she also talked about her strong work ethic, the fact that Growing up in the Midwest, she had suffered all kinds of discrimination. She experienced anti-Semitism firsthand, and I think that always aided her and was a driving force to make her excel. And she talks in her autobiography about the need to be rich and famous, and it was a kind of slap in the face of those people who had put her down when she was a young woman. And so I think that was part of it, but it, it made her tremendously successful. She was such a workaholic 
the work was it. The accomplishment of book after book, the recognition, she knew that she was living at the top, you know, in the that sort of charmed circle. I think the friends she had, that she could call anyone or get in touch with anyone, in that, in that sense, the doors opened, the welcome mat was out, you know, the restaurants kowtowed. All of that was was terrific, and I think she always loved that. Ferber had been a successful author before So Big, but in the 30 years after it came out, she would reach new heights. Heights that few, if any, American writers of her day could claim to have seen. This episode of Annotated is sponsored by Penguin Random House Audio. Holidays are happier with audiobooks. Find your story. Celebrate the holidays this year with audiobooks. Incorporate audiobooks into all aspects of your holiday prep, and you'll find you are enjoying the season more than you ever have. Let audiobooks be a part of the holiday season with this guide to listening throughout your house. Whether listening with your family in the living room, in the kitchen while cooking up delicious meals, or baking for that big party later today, in the bedroom when you escape the busyness of the day, or as you head out on that road trip to visit family or friends, Penguin Random House Audio offers a few listening suggestions for each room and then links out to a larger collection. Give yourself the gift of audiobooks with bestsellers from Debbie McCumber and Brene Brown to family favorites like Harry Potter and Magic Treehouse. Find your story at penguinrandomhouseaudio.com slash bookriot. Thanks to Penguin Random House Audio for sponsoring Annotated. As we said before, her novel Cimarron was the best-selling book of 1930. Both it and So Big were adapted multiple times for film, but if you've heard of a Ferber story, chances are you didn't know to attach the name Edna Ferber to it at all. When Lawrence Hart and Oscar Hammerstein adapted her 1926 novel Showboat into a musical, it ushered in a new era of musical theater with complicated characters and realistic social questions, in this case, racial intermarriage. Her novel Giant, set in the oil fields of Texas, would become a classic movie, notably featuring James Dean's last screen appearance. And though her 1958 novel Ice Palace wasn't perhaps her best work, nor was it immortalized as an adaptation, it might just be her most influential, just not for literary reasons. With Ice Palace, some claim that Ferber was instrumental in getting that 49th star on the American flag. Well, the timing was perfect. She herself said, without my realizing it, I wrote a front-page book because she was very pro-Alaska statehood, of course, and the book deals with all the politics behind it, all the nonsense that kept Alaska from being, being a state. But her book came out, and there was a huge letter-writing campaign to Congress, largely by Alaskan women that were advocating Alaskan statehood. And in fact, Ernest Grueling, who became the first senator from Alaska, wrote to her and said, in effect, Ice Palace is the Uncle Tom's cabin of Alaska statehood. So, in the late 1950s, Ferber was writing novels that influenced the very makeup of the nation itself. But just 10 years later, when she dies, there's barely a peep. It's almost impossible to fathom. But it, it was amazing that when she died in you know, the late 60s, and immediately fell into obscurity. And some considered her the, the great American woman writer of the 20th century. Two things seem likely causes for Ferber falling out of favor so quickly. One related to style, and one related to substance. She 
had a really romantic style and somewhat somewhat flowery style. And I think that has been eclipsed by newer writing styles that followed after her life. Her modernist contemporaries, the Joyces, the Wolves, the Hemingways, were doing things with style that weren't on Ferber's radar at all. And in the way people teach literary history, modernism tends to dominate how we see the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And that leaves Ferber out of the story completely. And if you think about the year she died, 1968, and what was going on in American culture then, Ferber's representation of America can also feel, not out of touch exactly, but certainly of a different time. I also think that her novels are somewhat, have become somewhat period pieces. Her books were very, very immediate and touched something in the American popular mind. She was very much into America as a concept, an idea, and so she went to Connecticut for American Beauty, Texas for Giant, uh, Chicago area for So Big, Seattle for uh, Great Sun. She was the preeminent chronicler of America of her day, an award winner, a perennial bestseller who hobnobbed with the rich and powerful of New York's elite. In short, exactly the kind of thing you would rebel against in the 1960s. But just because an author's star fades over time doesn't mean it will necessarily stay dim forever. Right. Some authors that are revered and read the world over today were, at one point, forgotten. Moby Dick didn't become the cultural monument it is today until an English professor made a case for it as a work of genius, more than 50 years after Melville's death. And famously, Zora Neale Hurston lay buried in an unknown grave, both literally and literarily, before Alice Walker championed her work. In both cases, there was something in the work that the wider culture was interested in, something that could resurrect the work and the author's name. So, the question. Is Ferber a candidate for this kind of a comeback? And if so, what could be her Moby Dick, her eyes were watching God? I kind of, I say, if you have to, if you have to do one, gosh, I guess I would say so big. And that was the one I cut my teeth on. And I still like So Big. I think she had a really good style there. She had a good story. She had good characterization. And as romantic as a lot of those books are, I find them compelling all these years later. After reading about Ferber and doing the interviews for this show, I knew I was too close to it to have anything like an objective opinion. So I called in a ringer, asked her to read So Big, and give it to me straight. I thought it was a little bit like John Steinbeck meets Dorothy Parker. This is the Liberty Hardy, who basically has read as much as anyone you are ever likely to meet and whose taste I trust implicitly. Maybe I just have the Dorothy Parker influence because they knew each other. Um, I found it a little... So here's a book from like 1924. And I was thinking it's going to be kind of grim and depressing, especially when it starts out with a woman who's working a farm. I was like, oh, this is going to be like really depressing. And it's not at all. It's it's sort of like high farm society. And she uses a lot of exclamation marks. And I was surprised by so many things about the book. Probably the thing that I found most surprising was for 1924. I know it was written by a woman, but it was 1924. I was surprised at how strong the female character was, how strong um, Selena was. Like, I, I didn't expect that at all. 
If Ferber has a shot at being rediscovered in a major way, her consistently strong, independent, interesting female protagonists might just be the thing people latch onto. And if they can connect with those characters, there's a good chance they will connect with Ferber herself. She is a, a model for her, all her characters. I mean, she takes these women who are, are born in obscurity, they, they have grits, they have all kinds of uh, metal, and through perseverance, largely fighting against the male-dominated world, succeeds. Like, when you think about 1924 when this came out, it, like, they made a, a movie adaptation of it, and it was a silent film. Oh, it's an old book. <laughs> I actually really enjoyed it. You know, uh, that, that was just my opinion. I was I was surprised because Rebecca's like, if if you hate it, stop reading it and then tell us why. You know, like, and and I I loved it. And I have to say, I kind of love So Big too. There's a determination and an optimism to it, but also a sobriety. And perhaps sadly, the kinds of stories Ferber wrote still feel relevant. Can I read you my favorite line? Absolutely. Um, so it's it's when. I don't think we're spoiling anything here because it's right in the description. Um, her husband dies and she has to run this farm. So she decides she's going to go to market herself and, and everyone is shocked and appalled because women don't go to the market. And her husband's um, farmhand is telling her, you know, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. And he says, never in my life did I hear of such a thing! Exclamation mark. Selena turned the horses' heads toward the city. You'd be surprised, John, to know of all the things you're going to hear of someday that you've never heard of before. I loved that. <laughs> like she told him. When I told Julie that I was sort of entranced by Ferber and her work and that I was hoping to get other people interested, well... Well, I'm delighted. I always feel that way. It's been my cause forever, you know. I, I feel like I'm the poster, the poster person for Edna Ferber. So I, I think that she was, uh, the comeback, if any, would be that she was such a quintessential American patriot, and she she saw the warts and all of this country and the tendencies, but she really, you know, she she wanted to call them out and to look at them and to make the country better through what she was doing. But she taught you. She taught you how to be better, and that was something extraordinary, and I saw it again and again with people, that she just made them rise up and be the best self they could. And that is... Yeah. This episode of Annotated was written and produced by me, Jeff O'Neill. Sound editing and design by Kyle O'Neill. My sincere thanks to Julie Gilbert for talking with me about her great aunt, Edna Ferber. Her book, Ferber, a biography of Edna Ferber and her circle, is the definitive work on Ferber and collects dozens of pictures of Ferber's life and includes selections from Ferber's personal correspondence that are singularly illuminative of her life. Gilbert's next book, Giant Love, about the writing of Giant and making of the adaptation starring James Dean, will be published in 2020. And thanks to Ed Ifkovich for sharing his lifelong Ferber fandom. His 10-book series of mysteries starring Edna as a world-trotting, murder-solving detective comes to a conclusion. But for those interested in trying one of them, here's his recommendation. When I published this year, Mood Indigo is my current favorite, maybe because it's my newest one. I also think it's the one that uh, 
somehow captured her the best, but it takes place in Manhattan in the 30s, the Depression, and she's running around town with no coward trying to solve a murder. And so you get all her rich friends, but you also get her, the side of her that's sympathetic to what's happening in, in, during the Depression in New York, the bread lines, the poverty, and so forth. So there's a mixture of, mixture of fervor in the book, and it's the book I like, like the most. Thanks also to reader extraordinaire Liberty Hardy for being our Ferber guinea pig. You can hear her and Rebecca every week discuss which new book should be on your radar in Book Riot's own All the Books podcast. And finally, if you enjoy Annotated, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. And just to make it easy for you, five stars means the best. Until next time, read something great. <laughs>